Hi, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You know, several times um, throughout the podcast, I've talked about some of my own educational background. And thinking back to when uh, I was a very young student, so I think kindergarten, first grade, second grade, etc., um, one of the things I've maybe not told on the podcast before is that I was mildly dyslexic or maybe majorly dyslexic if you would uh, have the ability to talk to my teachers. And, you know, one of the things that I was always challenged with with that dyslexia was writing. So I did the typical reversal of letters and that sort of thing. But um, I was able to read very well. Uh, my brother, who um, is older than I was, always had a steady diet of peanut books to give me. Uh, and I started out reading those and then progressed on to uh, much larger chapter books, probably at an age earlier than, than, than I would have normally done if it weren't for a brother that had a deep love of science fiction that he passed along to me. I give you that context to say that, you know, for me, reading was transformative, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today in this podcast. My guest is Tyson Smith. He has served as the chief executive officer for Reading Horizons for over 21 years. Reading Horizons is an education publishing company that specializes in reading instruction, um, and their goal is to unlock students' academic potential through reading. Tyson, thank you so so much for being on the program today. Absolutely. Scott, thanks for the invitation. I look forward Great. to the conversation. Um, so I, I actually want to start by having you talk about your background. It really struck me when I was learning more about you and also reading about the mission and the values associated um, with Reading Horizons that this really seems like a passion for you personally. Uh, and, and you've clearly been with, with the organization and in, in, in the leadership role for a long time. And so can you talk about what brought you into the world or the, you know, the science of, of teaching reading and why that's so important to you? You know, that's a great question. I, I, uh, I didn't come through a, a traditional path, I think, for someone who leads a, an education publishing enterprise. I'm, I was a business major in the 90s and uh, was recruited by this little company uh, that had a fantastic mission. I, I came because I wanted to learn more about mm -hmm. the industry. And uh, and so uh, early on had some experiences with uh, with educators and with the importance of, of teaching people to read. I, I caught, it, it just lit a hmm. fire in me um, because of the, uh, the important work that it is. There's so many that... Uh, that struggle with reading, similar to what you just you mentioned, right? Your own, your personal story, your family. That there's so many individuals that struggle, and and that just I I uh, I learned really quickly that I I uh, I just mm -hmm. I'm about people, Scott. I love to see people rise up and become something more. And if you can't read, that's very difficult to do. And so we uh, that became that became a personal mission of mine is to, uh, to see if we can't help fix this problem. I mean, our mission is to eradicate mm -hmm. illiteracy uh, because it's, uh, it's opportunity. If you can't read, it's really difficult to become a productive member of society. And so I, that, I, it really struck me. I'd been here for a year or two, and I had a few experiences, um, specifically an experience with some juvenile hmm. offenders in a, in a prison in, or a, a jail in Skagit mm -hmm. County, Washington, that just left me feeling like, wow, this is... This is a much more profound problem than I think mm -hmm. a lot of us understood. 
And uh, it just left me feeling very, very fortunate to have found an industry that I can be so passionate about and, uh, and just committed to seeing if we can't, we can't fix the problem. You know, so many, so many of our, of our teenagers in juvenile detention and our prisoners in, in the prison system across the country struggle with reading. It's a, it's a, it's a wildly um, important and, and uh, just, you know, a problem just doesn't mm -hmm. need to be as pervasive as it is. One of the, you know, as someone who follows, um, you know, some of the national statistics on student achievement, I mean, reading is clearly something that, that everyone's paying attention to because, you know, I, I think there is, there is a good understanding about why it's so facilitative of all types of learning, um, not just for reading, but, but all other types of, of, of achievement. What, what do you think the current state of reading achievement is nationally? Uh, and what are some of the factors that you think are, you know, causing it to be that way right now? You know, you look at the NAEP scores and, uh, and it is, it's, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's disappointing uh, that, uh, that we've, we haven't been able to move the needle to a greater degree. We have students right now that the, the learning loss through COVID mm -hmm. is a real thing. And that's something that I think all of us need to recognize. It's, you know, we've definitely taken a step back this last, this last three years. But, but outside of that, too, people ask me that question routinely. Like, what is the, what do you think? How did we get here? And, uh, and for me, it's, there are a couple, of, a couple of routine answers that I, that I offer. One of them is that for too long, we have, we have educators that have come out of our higher ed, and they just haven't been given the... Uh, the skills that they need, the practical strategies to be able to teach children, the what we what we now mm -hmm. call the science of reading, right? It used to be called explicit systematic decoding strategies instruction. Now we call it the science of reading, and uh, we just we we hadn't for, for for decades hadn't prepared our teachers with the with the this the skills and, and the and the and given them the confidence that they need as they as they as they accomplish their university programs to be able to teach our kids to read. And so I think that, that was a, that's been a, a systemic issue for decades. Uh, a lot more focus this last decade in, in programs in, in our universities. Um, a lot of states with legislation, right, that requires teachers to become more proficient in the science of reading. And, uh, and so that, that's making a difference. I think that's, that's making a difference, uh, at least with teacher confidence and mm -hmm. competence. And which is why I love this, this podcast. I mean, the fact that teaching absolutely does matter and, and helping our teachers to feel the, uh, to feel like they've got the skills that are required that, that Scott, even if all of the material was stripped from them, I, I use this sometimes if, with presentations that if on the way to class today, all of our, all of our K3 teachers, especially let's focus there, they get to, they get to school and all of the, the books and software and manuals are gone, right? They've all just been stripped from the classrooms and all they had was a whiteboard to marker and a 90 minute block. Like, what does that look like? What, what could those teachers, what could they do in that 90 minutes to teach the kids that they've been, that they've been uh, asked to, to, to help with this most important and, and profoundly important skill? What, what, what kind of mm -hmm. instruction could they provide if they didn't have material? And I like to think that's the direction that we're going as we offer our teachers more just, just more, uh, more confidence through exposure to, to the, so to, the to crystallize that just a little bit, cause I, I find that, um, 
really provocative in a good way, you know, what you just said. Like, so my daughter is 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 going into teaching. Like, what are some of the skills that she needs to have in teaching social studies or any teacher? It doesn't have to be my daughter, obviously. But, you know, as you as you talk about having that confidence, as you talk about having those skills as a teacher, what are some examples of those that, you know, listeners might be interested in, in understanding more? It's a good question. And that is, you know, there's been a lot of... Uh... There's a lot of training that's, that's, that's happening across the country right now to help teachers understand the role of, of mm-hmm. phonemic awareness, right? The ability to distinguish individual sounds. Even before we learn anything about graphemes, uh, what are the phonemes? Like, what are the sounds? And, and, uh, and for decades, that was just ignored, right? We didn't really spend a lot of time paying attention to whether or not the students can hear the sounds because that has such a profound influence on whether or not they can... They can find that they can produce them, and then they can find them and, and link them to, to the graphemes and and become a proficient reader. So, you know, additionally, you know, we have our language. Uh, our language is interesting, and there's just no even those of us that, that espouse the science recognize that there are a number of exceptions in English. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an easy language mm-hmm. to learn and to learn to read. However, there are a number of rules, and and over 85% of commonly used words can be decoded. And so giving students an idea about what does the vowel say, right? And its position in a word dictates so much about whether it's mm-hmm. what sound it makes. And, and too frequently, we, we, do, we don't identify those patterns for students. Um, we'll do 45-minute we'll do uh, demonstrations daily with ed- groups of educators and have them come out and say, I had no idea that there was such a, there was so many patterns in our language and it could be hmm. so simple to learn to teach yeah. and to teach it. Uh, and so just things that, they, listen, Scott, if I had five bucks for every educator that I'd heard say, why didn't I get that in school? Why didn't I know this stuff? And, and uh, it's ultimately why we actually published a tool about eight or nine years ago for universities that teaches the basic rules that they can drop into a syllabus. It's a little six-hour mm-hmm. online tool. And universities use it to teach the you know, pre-service teachers the science of reading before they leave college. And again, frankly, we did that because I was tired of hearing teachers say, why didn't I learn this in a university setting? And, uh, and so as you say, you're right. It, it is, I think it can be provocative, but also it's just, it's mm-hmm. the brutal facts. We have, we have teachers that they want to feel that competence. Who doesn't right. want to feel, right? Like a master of your trade. And, uh, and frequently they just don't have, they just haven't been given everything they need. Well, and of course, it, it would be an, it would be frustrating for a teacher to be able to recognize that one or more students in their classroom has a has a has a problem and, and not really know the best way to help the student solve that problem. So I, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I think sure. you've already started to kind of go down this path a little bit. But one of the things that I was interested in learning about Reading Horizons is that you explicitly build you know, your approach uh, contemporaneously around um, uh, the, the philosophy of Charlotte Lockhart. Can you, can you talk a little bit about her philosophy and how that has evolved into where Reading Horizons is at right now? It's a fantastic question and a topic that I, I love to discuss. We, uh, our program is founded on these basic rules. They keep referring to them, right? We have these, this basic system that, that, I mean, I could explain the rules, an overview of them in, in less than 10 minutes. It's not rocket science. Um, yes, there's, there's some exceptions here and there. And when you really whittle it down, it's not, 
it's not as complicated as sometimes we make it. And this was this was uh, originally authored in the 70s by an educator named Charlotte Lockhart. She was a, a teacher and administrator in the public school system in Illinois for years, and uh, and had had some teachers come to her one year saying, "Hey, we've got we've got kids, and tell me that this isn't the story for so many of our teachers, especially in K3, where they have." those five, six, seven, eight kids that just aren't getting it and they just don't know what to do. Um, some of these teachers came to her one year and said, hey, we've got, you know, we have kids and we're, we're just sick of passing them along. And she said, you know, if you'd be interested in maybe ask them if they'd come in before school, I, as the principal, sure. she was the principal at the time, would be happy to work with them. So they came in for a few months and she worked with them and, and they made tremendous strides. The teachers came back and said, what did you do to these kids? And she said, you know, I have, I have some things I've learned over the years, just a way of looking at reading that, uh, that's a little different. And, and I just applied some of what, I've know, what I know. And, and they said, what? Well, teach us. And so she taught her, her staff. They eventually encouraged her to publish, which she did. She published a 376-page manual um, that, uh, that she marketed herself for a few decades. And, and just, a, just a very, just a reading um, just a passionate mm -hmm. reading educator. I mean, now we would call mm -hmm. her a reading scientist, right? That's what you'd call a Charlotte Lockhart as a reading scientist, but just a, a, a passionate reading educator that was able to take, again, what can be, what can feel overwhelming for both teachers and students at times, and to help make it more accessible, make it simplify and make more accessible that which, which so many find to be difficult and cumbersome and overwhelming. I was, um, you know, when I was telling my story um, at the beginning of our discussion, I, I you know, because of pre preparing, you know, to have a discussion with you, I, I, I reflected back on what I remember about um, my reading instruction. And, and, you know, to put that in context, I was born in 69. So you can do the math and kind of figure out where I was at in, in respect to this. And I do explicitly remember phonics as being the basis of how I was taught to read, um, you know, through the materials that we were using. And I can't remember the names of the books now, but it was the the books with the card that you slid up in a sleeve to get answers that you were filling out. I mean, I can remember all this stuff really well. Uh -huh. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the evolution, um, you know, in broad strokes over time about how we have approached reading instruction. Um, so I know that, you know, the, the phrases are phonics and, and whole reading. What are the differences in those and when did they pop up as being sort of the way to do things over the course of time? Uh, can you give kind of an overview of that? Sure. Yeah, there's been, there really are those, there've been a couple of camps, right? They, and they've referred to this over the decades as mm -hmm. the reading wars, right? This, this, the, the the polarizing this this war that you know yeah you have phonics on one side and and whole language uh, on the other side and 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 really I will say this I mean in both both camps recognize that the the ultimate goal is kids who can who can build mm -hmm. a love for reading through you know comprehending what they're reading um, the issue has been and it's true when I started in the industry in the 90s. Uh, yeah, I would call into school districts and, and they would straight up just say, yeah, we don't teach phonics. And, uh, and it's because, you know, the, the whole language, that, that journey, it really is the focus really does, you know, it focuses more on, the, on that whole experience and helping the students to see contextually, right, to learn more contextually 
um, through their through their experience with a book, and uh, it just it doesn't have the focus on on the the word level, uh, and so phonics and phonics what we do it really is more than just phonics phonics in a rudimentary sense is letters mm-hmm. and sounds and what is what sound does the letter make and and we've and obviously what we're trying to do is has help students understand how to attack a word like some a word that is unfamiliar to me how do i sound this out and then ultimately helping students to to, to move from the word level to to the sentence level and then to to paragraph right or to a book that, that then i don't have to use so much there's so much of a cognitive load for so many of our students to just move through the mm-hmm. word level. I just don't know what it says. I don't have the skills to interpret what it says. And, uh, and they get stuck and then they lose their, their confidence, right? It just becomes, I've used that word a lot this morning, Scott, both with teachers and students, because literacy, it's confidence, it's self-esteem. It's more than just being able to read, you know, a book or to fill out a job application. It's confidence and self-esteem for Great. both teachers and students. And so, yeah, that's in a, in, a, in, a, in a rudimentary sense, we're helping students to see, uh, you know, if 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 you can if you can you can attend to meaning, if you don't have to focus so hard on what yeah, the that's word a great that's a so great way of crystallizing that. I love that. I yeah yeah. Well, yeah. that's really the goal. Is that, is then now now I can get mm-hmm, I can get into mm-hmm. the book, right? I can get into whatever it is I'm reading because the word level is just not it's just not taking so much of my my bandwidth and sucking my confidence. And so, yes, I think sometimes it, we can get stuck on, uh, you know, people who promote phonics. We got to be careful because the goal isn't to have, you know, students, you know, just attacking words mm-hmm. for the sake of attacking a word, right? Or, or marking the word. And, and that's something that we promote is look for a pattern, mark the pattern, read the word. But yes, the goal is to where, is to get to where they, they recognize enough of what they're reading that they only have to attack what's right. unfamiliar and that over time that 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 becomes you know it works into their working mm-hmm. memory and and they map it in their brain so that now when they move through a book it's it's they're able to attend to meaning and a lot of the light was shown on this in you know the late 90s early 2000s there was a report put out by the federal government the national reading panel report that just it it it, it put the spotlight on you know the importance of mm-hmm. phonemic awareness and phonics as a foundation for you know, the rest, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension, moving up the pyramid to comprehension. And, uh, and how that's, for over the last 20 plus years, been applied in our school systems, that's, that's been the, the issue, right? We learned uh, that, yeah, if you're going to give every kid the best chance at reading success, you've got to give them yeah. a foundation in phonemic awareness and phonics. And we, haven't, we just haven't pushed that through the system last 20 plus years like we, like we it's really interesting when you were you know back to when you were talking about the confidence on the student like in higher ed um my background is in the field of communication and so it's a, a heavy emphasis on both written but also oral uh communication and so like when i'm teaching public speaking i always admonish students that reading a manuscript is not a you know it's not an effective way to deliver a great public speech right so so we we teach them intentionally not to do that however students will try to you know cheat that a little bit and when they will be reading and they will hit a word and say it wrong 
they will know that they've said it wrong and you can just see their confidence like completely evaporate. You know, they have one stumble and then it, you're right. It short circuits their working memory. It short circuits um, everything that they're trying to do to get meaning across to an audience um, because they hit a word on a piece of paper and they couldn't say it quite right. And they know and they know that it's it's it, it, it happens, you know, quite a bit, as you can imagine. And that is an interesting parallel because you can then see as you say you can Mm -hmm. see it just drain right the energy that it takes now just to stand in front of the group right let alone deliver what you're supposed to deliver it's the same thing that happens to our students every day when they encounter text that is unfamiliar especially if they're reading with somebody else and they encounter unfamiliar text and and that 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 you know those darts hit them over and over like you know what tyson you can't read right you've been trying Mm -hmm. for years you can't read that this is beyond you, and, and the, again, the self-confidence, the, the hit that that is to their self-confidence, is it's terribly sad. And, and we have a lot of adults and, and older students in our country that face yeah. that every day. They go out every day hoping to not be exposed as mm-hmm. an illiterate person. And, uh, and if we're giving them the right instruction in K3, uh, we'd have far fewer that would be feeling that, the pains of, of illiteracy. And so that really is maybe finishing that story out really quick, Scott. So this, that Charlotte Lockhart, she, she met our co-founder in the early 80s who was a technologist. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we could computerize the most basic rules. We could put them on the computer. And so that, that started to happen in the, in the mid-80s. And uh, our first versions were, were big floppy <laughs> disks and, and hard to use. It's gotten a lot, a lot better. The delivery is a lot better. But still with the goal of making those rules more accessible to teachers mm-hmm. and students. It doesn't matter how good your stuff is if people can't access it. And especially for a student who struggled to learn to read, technology can be a good, a good way of pushing that, those rules out and, and allowing students to engage with the rules in a way that works for them, right, and that's infinitely patient with them. Um, but then also for younger students, uh, technology is a great way to augment what a teacher is teaching them, right, and to allow them to get it at their own pace. So. I think that's, it's become a, a, technology can help to level the playing field, give the teachers what she needs. So it's not just technology that's disparate, right, from teacher instruction. Like I teach you this way and then go use a program that's not really connected to what we just learned, but technology that blends, right, with a teacher to make, to make her instruction more accessible. To so last October, uh, your company launched um, a new edition of Reading Horizons Discovery can you talk about what some of the features are of that 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 you're hoping will lead to potential improvements in reading instruction? You know, that is I actually thank you for asking. <laughs> I can't talk enough about that. It, it really is uh you know, there's there's a business concept called disruptive innovation uh that uh, was pioneered by a Harvard business professor years ago. That he said, every now and then you'll see in, in an industry, in, innovation will happen and, and, and it can just disrupt the way things are done. And sometimes it's embraced and, and, then, and then it, and then it uh, is promoted through the system. Other times the system rejects it for a time, but eventually, frequently it surfaces again. It's, you know, examples are like the, the digital mm-hmm. camera, right? That Kodak had a chance to embrace that early and they just didn't. And where is Kodak now? And so... Every now and then, you know, innovations will happen, and I'm excited to see. I should say that the, the gentleman who who uh, 
who published that that uh, the research initially, his name was Clayton Christensen. He applied those theories of disruption to education back in the 2000s. Wrote a book called Disrupting mm. Class, and it's it's all about the role of of in a, uh, technology in education, what technology can do for education. And so, I, I what we've been working on for the last few years at Reading Horizons, there's is again ways that we can make the science of reading more accessible to more to more students and teachers. And so I challenged the company a few years ago to see if we couldn't make it so that even the teachers who were very reluctant to try new things almost couldn't help themselves. That was the challenge that I gave them, was those that are late mm-hmm. to adopt frequently, that they would, they, would, they would have a hard time saying no to, uh, to Reading Horizons. And so I, uh, what the teams work on is, is a combination, not just of software that students would use, uh, but how do we make technology really smooth the path for a teacher? We know they've got more on their plates. There's just there's more pressure on a teacher today than ever before. And so the technology we've been working on helps take a teacher and allows her to, to prepare to teach in a portal, providing her with everything she needs. She teaches from the same portal using an iPad or a mobile device. And then as the students access the technology at the end of the instruction, they can access technology to see what they've learned that feeds it to the same portal so she can see how they're doing. And then it can group for her, the students who need additional help for some small group work and and provide what she should do. And just all using technology to help guide her direct instruction in the science of reading. Uh, Students can then continue on and and using software to to practice and reinforce and reteach. And, uh, and so that's, that's really what we're, what we're trying to do is use technology to, to provide almost like, it, like a right. tutor for every student. But more than that, it's, it's the teacher uh, providing her with everything she needs in one place to feel like she, she's got what she, she needs to be an effective instructor, effective, uh, instructor in the science of reading. In terms of the, um, the ability of the teacher, I, I was really intrigued by when I when I learned that um, that the product uh, Reading Horizons Discovery would let teachers sort of see groupings of students, how you know when when the software is giving the teacher that type of information, how does the teacher effectively make decisions on how to interact with students that have varying levels of of reading skill and literacy skill? Um, in the course of a day where, you know, they have, they still have to try to move all the students along at, at a similar rate. I mean, how, how do you balance that? I mean, I, I totally understand what you're saying about it. It helps the teacher individualize her instruction. And um, the, I'm a big pro- proponent of that. There's a challenge with that when you're teaching a classroom full of students, you know, at the same time, how do you balance those things where you're individualizing your instruction in a productive way and still meeting the objectives of the class? That is that's that is a that's a great question, and that you're right. That's a challenge for teachers every day. With a group of 15, 20, 25 students, how do I do that? How do I individualize it? And uh, and again, I think that's that's where technology really has its it, it can play a critical not mm-hmm. to replace her, but to augment her. And so what we'll do is again, she offers whole class instruction, um, teaching with a mobile device. Then when the students access, they, they open their device, their Chromebook, they take out their iPad and access the what we call a skill check. 
um, just to see. So I delivered whole class instruction. Um, I should mention, the way the system works as well, she can walk around the class as she's projecting this um, because it allows broadcasting through the mobile device so the students can see it. She's watching them as they work. Big part of our system is uh, we really work to, to engage the students. You know, it's multi-sensory, it's tactile. And so they, students are writing on a, on a mm -hmm. lap board, for example, and, 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 and proving words. She's watching that. She can then indicate on her mobile device which students are performing mm. well, which students need some extra help. She actually can do mm -hmm. some of her own assessing as she's delivering instruction. And then at the end, when they take their quick, just a, a, a three-minute assessment to see what they've retained, uh, it, it provides that, feeds that directly to her device. And then again, tells her, okay, these are the students. Uh, in fact, here's, Scott, I was just in a classroom. I, I went on a, a three-week uh, tour. I just got back on Friday visiting customers across the East Coast and, and the Midwest. And I was in some classrooms where this new technology is being used. And it really was, it was, it was cool to see her at the end of her instruction, take the assessment. She then said, okay, you six students have done really well. She didn't say that, but you can see it on the iPad. Okay, you six students, why don't you continue on in the software, do some additional activities. You four or five, I'd like you to use this transfer mm -hmm. activity at your desk. And you five or six, come back with me and we're going to spend an extra eight minutes working on this skill. And so, again, providing her with the tools that she can then, you know, here's the data, here's what kids need extra, extra help, pull them back. Everyone else has something productive to do. Um, that, that's really where technology is at its best because it's not, again, providing them with, it's not right. just a babysitter, right? It's reinforcing what they learned. It's, it's reteaching and allowing them to continue on while she focuses her energy on the kids who need a little extra help. And so, but giving her that mm -hmm. data, right, real time. She doesn't have to go dig it up someplace. Or, or rely just on, I mean, stuff. teachers have awesome intuition with their students once they get to know them, obviously. But, but I mean, what struck me in, in, as I was understanding your system is that it, it sort of provides the teacher, especially when they're managing a larger class, the ability to have intelligence that is highlighted for students rather than, you know, trying to remember you know, uh, across time on, on a score, uh, you know, in, in the score sheet about how, how students were doing. I mean, this provides sort of a real time set of intelligence metrics for each student. So I think that's, and not intelligence in terms of IQ, but like the teacher having the intel to know how they want to approach individual students or groups of students. I think that's really fascinating. That's yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. what to do. So it sends me the data, feeds me the data, and gives me ideas, suggestions for what to do next, right? So that I don't have to to spend an hour, you know, prepping for a yeah. lesson or, or what to do with the with these kids who need a little extra intervention. It feeds yeah. that to me. Uh, the whole idea of making it making it so simple that that uh, Steve Jobs did it with the iPhone, made it it's so easy that even my 80 year old mom, right, can use it. If we can make the technology so simple that it, that doesn't require, we talk about cognitive load, right, right, and bandwidth. If a teacher, yeah. right, she doesn't have to commit so much cognitive bandwidth to preparing her lesson, to teaching her lesson. Let's feed it to her. In fact, one of the teachers that was using the technology, we asked her the difference between that and what she'd used before with our program, using our manuals in previous years, and she said, "This is so simple that I could get sick right now, put my iPad down, have to head home." And my parent mm -hmm. can pick it up and just continue from where I left off. That it's just it's very um, simple to prepare to teach, simple to teach, 
uh, and I say simple, simple for the science of reading, because it can come off sometimes, Scott, is very mm -hmm. complicated, mm -hmm. right? Very difficult to learn to teach and to teach. So we're just trying to make that again more accessible through the use of technology and enhancing, not replacing the teacher, but enhancing right. her instruction and giving her that feedback and then providing her with the activities, real-time video, right, of, of a teacher modeling that skill. And, and so, uh, yeah, and, and we'll continue, right, to, to let technology uh, help us to, to make it more accessible. This, will, this, this is going to just continue on into the future as we see opportunities to leverage technology for the betterment of our Yeah, absolutely. Teachers. And it sounds, you know, obviously I've not, I've not had the privilege of being able to teach off of the platform, but, uh, but it sounds very teacher and student-centered, and, and congratulations on, you know, a UX UI design that accomplishes that. It, it's not easy to do. Uh, we've seen a lot of... We've seen a lot of ed tech companies fail in, you know, achieving that, and it really sounds like you've hit the mark. Um, I want to backtrack and ask you a couple questions that was actually more relevant earlier in a conversation, but you, but you went in such a great direction, I didn't want to stop you. When we were talking about the state of where reading achievement is at right now, you did bring up the topic of COVID and how that's had an effect. Of course, we all know that uh, if if we've taught, we've seen it, and if we've read any of the statistics, we've seen the statistics bear that out. Can you talk a little bit more about um, if you could hypothesize, of course, you probably don't have direct data on this, but if you could hypothesize what the if, how COVID affected reading achievement and the context behind that question is, you know, if, if I wasn't thinking deeply about this, I might say, well, students were spending a lot more time at home, so they could have been reading more and, and that didn't bear out that they were getting more effective at reading during COVID. Why do you think that is? You know, what it, I, again, I sat in some classrooms, Scott, just, mm -hmm. just over the last few weeks. I sat in some classrooms, and that, a lot of what was resonating with me was, was just the power of, of these. The teachers that we were observing were just so good. I could sit in a classroom for six hours and, and not just watch them instruct our program or reading, but just to watch mm -hmm. a teacher teach. The learning environment, the feeling you get sitting in the back of a classroom, watching a teacher manage the class, and because it's it is a it is a symphony. Yeah, right? yeah. they are conducting this symphony of all these little personalities that are going a million different directions, and to get that to to really bring, uh, you know, to help to, to to create an effective learning environment, um, we lost that when COVID. Even we had some great teachers that. They, here they are trying to provide that experience. And again, anyone who, who wonders, just go sit in the back of a classroom mm -hmm. for an hour someplace and you'll feel that difference. To recreate that online with a week's notice. Right? Like every, hey guys, we're teaching from home now. And, uh, and so many of these kids, you watch the kids that, you know, there's 30% there's that are going to learn to read pretty much regardless of what we do. Um, and then the, the other 70%, there's a chunk of those that, that sit on that fence and that you provide them with good, they're going to pick it up very quickly. They're going to get moving. And then there's 30% that if they don't get the right instruction, at the right time, they're mm -hmm. going to really struggle. And, uh, and so you see those kids that, yeah, here I am now trying to, to, you know, the learning environment has been stripped from me. I'm trying to do this on the internet with all the distractions of home and, uh, you know, teachers who want to be able to exert that influence and know that their little ones are actually paying attention this is being you know the information's being absorbed it just was not you know 
to think that we could do it at home, I knew yeah, we yeah. didn't have a choice, right? We did what we had to, but to think that we could actually recreate that environment because it's magic. Our classrooms are magic. And, uh, and so we had just a lot of kids who didn't get it. You know, they didn't get good reading instruction for those, for the one, two, three years. And, uh, and it, it, it showed the importance of, of what happens in our classrooms and our teachers, you know, being able to, to create an environment where students can learn. Because we said it earlier, just because I'm home and I have more, more time on my hands to maybe sit down with a book, if I don't have the skills to actually attack words that are unfamiliar to me, I'm not going to spend mm -hmm. a lot of time in books. Right? If reading is frustration for me. And, uh, and that's what it is for a lot of kids. So our teachers were trying, we tried to provide additional resources and videos they could use. And, and I know everyone was working to try and help recreate that environment. But there's something to being in a classroom right, with a teacher who knows what she's doing. That, that creating yeah, that learning. Totally agree. Do, do you have an opinion on um, whether or not social media use affects teaching uh, affects uh, literacy rates? Um, it's a good question. I don't. Uh, I don't know that I have a strong opinion about that. No. I mean, I know that there's a lot of research that talks about talks about you know, the, the pros sure, and cons yeah. of social media, but I, I've never really connected it to literature. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've um, had, so, so I've been having discussions with my students who are again, college age about um, the increasing use of, of emoticons um, in, in text messages and, and then kind of unpacking with them how, you know, the emoticons are very intentional. They're not just flippant in the way that, well, I, you know, I don't want to talk universally. I think there probably are some very flippant emoticons that are used, but, but, you know, when people compose messages, they do so very intentionally. And then when they decode those messages with emoticons, they're doing the same thing. I, I think it's fascinating because um, in some ways you almost see new rules of our language uh, being created uh, that does not necessarily cross other contexts. I mean, it really is unique to social media, whether it's good or bad. I, I don't know, <laughs> but I, but I think it's fascinating to watch, um, with my students, with my daughter, um, and, and, uh, and, and a lot of public figures now that are starting to use that. So, well, Tyson, I, I really appreciate, um, learning more, not just about, uh, reading horizons and, and your journey, um, as the 20 plus year CEO of that organization, but, it, but just your passion in talking about, you know, wanting to eradicate a literacy, I, I just find so important because I think that, you know, anybody that thinks very long knows that the ability to read is sort of the, the magic key that unlocks so much else for students as they uh, conduct their journey. Uh, th that's exactly what it is. And I mentioned earlier, Scott, that that's what we really provide is self-esteem hmm. and self-confidence that's born of, of, uh, being feeling feeling like I can excel in school, translating that to work. Uh, there is so much. I think if all of us could experience what illiteracy felt like, yeah. even just for an hour, um, and to know that it's something that 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 doesn't mm -hmm. have to be. I mean, there's things about you, you know, maybe your height, right, your your eye color that you can't change, and and to know that this is something that people deal with routinely, that doesn't have to be. Um, it, it doesn't have to be. I mean, literacy is opportunity, and we need to make that. We need to, the world needs. I mean, there's so many things that we deal with in society and as, as individuals. 
we need a literate society and to see what that would do to our society if everyone could read that has yeah. to be our goal. well said well said and so and, yeah. well thank you so much thank for your time i really appreciate it and it's great to meet you yeah, nice Absolutely. to meet you as well. My guest today it. was Tyson Smith. He's the chief executive officer of Reading Horizons. Uh, that company is an education publishing company that specializes in reading instruction, and we'll have a link to their website uh, in the text accompanying the podcast if you would like to learn more. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. My name is Scott Titsworth. I'm your host, and of course, our associate producer and audio engineer is Adam Rich. He's listening quietly in the background. So we thank you for listening to us. If you have ideas, comments, or questions, please feel free to reach out to us by email or through our social media accounts. We would love to hear from you, and we hope that all of you have a great day. Thank you.